Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. I love the Gospel of John, but I did read a commentary early on where the preacher warned, the writer wrote, most pastors start the Gospel of John series with great enthusiasm, and it wanes over time because they realize they're saying the same thing every week. Jesus is God, and he saves us. That's really the stated purpose of John in writing his Gospel. At the very end, he says, everything I've written here has had one single-minded purpose. It's not life's owner's manual. It's not a handbook on how to live well. The entire purpose of the whole gospel of John is so that you would see clearly who Jesus is and know that your hope and your salvation rests squarely in him and him only. And the goal that John had as he was writing every word was that everyone who would read this would see Jesus, would bow their knees and open their hearts to him, and would be saved. That was the only thing he had in mind, and that's what every single sermon is about at the end of the day. So he was right in that after a while, as a preacher, if you really enjoy some of the diversity of the message, and after a while, you're like, I think I'm repeating myself every Sunday. But if there's anything worth repeating over and over, it's that, that Jesus is God, and he alone saves. And if you need saving from anything, especially that ultimate salvation. It only comes through one person. There is only one place to turn for rescue. I think it's important we remember that as we look at this text. It's a familiar text. If you've grown up in the church, you know this text, but maybe you don't know this particular account of this familiar story quite as well. It's called Walking on Water. I was surprised how few images there are of this. On the internet. So I found the best one I could, and it's not even that great. But Jesus, one day, walked on water. And because I've grown up hearing that, I'm like, whatever. But I want you to just pause for a second and think about what a crazy statement that is. That somebody once walked on water. And we're going to look at John chapter 6, verses 16 to 21. Here's what it says. This is the word of God. When evening came, his disciples went down to the lake, where they got into a boat and set off across the lake for Capernaum. By now it was dark, and Jesus had not yet joined them. A strong wind was blowing, and the waters grew rough. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I, don't be afraid. Then they were willing to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. I have, for the last couple weeks, just parked myself in John's, John chapters 5 and 6. I've read it, good Lord, probably a hundred times, just over and over. I'm trying to soak in what is happening here in the life of Jesus and his followers. And I have an overactive imagination, and I was reading over and over. I was caught by a very tangible sense of identifying with how tired 
these guys were. Have you ever had one of those days where it seems like you honestly can't remember the last time you slept or rested? Those days that seem like they just won't end. They were having a day like this. In fact, I think they were having a string of days like this. You remember last week we mentioned that they were coming into this whole episode already worn out. They had come off of an itinerant ministry, a, very, a period of very intense door-to-door spiritual warfare kind of ministry. They had just received the tragic news that their friend John the Baptist had been unjustly put to death. He was beheaded by a very cruel and unjust king. And then they had entered into open conflict with the most powerful religious leaders of their society. And in those days, the religious leaders, like, like in the, the, um, the medieval European days, had civic power as well, civil power. So they not only could cause you trouble in church, they could cause you trouble at work, at home, in life in general. So now they were reeling from bad news, exhausted from hard ministry, And now in open conflict with very powerful people, I want you to know that those things are like the perfect storm, the trifecta of stress and draining the soul of a person. And that's just how they started this long day. They walked into this day in that condition. And Jesus, sensing their condition, said to them, Guys, we need to get away from all of this and retreat away. And that's what they were attempting to do. They got into a boat and crossed from Capernaum to this area. But the crowds, so desperate in their need, chased him along the shore and intercepted him when they landed. And the disciples inwardly groaned because you know one of those days where you've already started out tired. and You really want rest. And here is a crowd of anywhere from fifteen to 20,000 people. And they're obsessed with their needs. Have you ever been there where your own needs are screaming at you and there are people in your face saying, but I need something from you as well. If you're a parent, you know every day what that feels like. Would it give you a heart attack if your kids came up and you said, mom, dad, what do you need from me today? Call the call 911. I'm having cardiac arrest. And, And that's not to say kids don't love you or care, but People need what they need, and we almost never think about what others need. And if you're ministry leadership, that is par for the course almost every day of your life. I'm sure they were rooting inwardly for Jesus saying, you know what, people, we need to draw some boundaries. We appreciate you have needs. We got to go. And they all ran away. But instead, Jesus goes, hey, we, this is the, their problem is our problem. Not only are they here needing ministry, they're hungry Let's feed them. Now, I don't know if you've ever been to Willow Creek when the place is full, but um, I don't know if you've ever seen a crowd. I remember being at the Urbana Mission Conference when I was a college student and sitting in a room full of 19,000 people singing Amazing Grace, and I was blown away. Just the strength of the voices, the size of a crowd, everybody there motivated to bring the gospel to the nations. It was stirring. But if Jesus came up to me and said, Hey, Dave, Find 11 friends and let's feed all these suckers. I'd be like, do you know how long that's going to take? I once ate lunch at a place called the Flying W Ranch uh, outside of Boulder, Colorado. It's a chuck wagon style restaurant, and they boasted that they could clear a dinner service of 2,000 people in 20 minutes because they had a staff of 50 and a system that worked. Uh, It was remarkable to watch. I saw 2,000 people come in. They lined up, and bam, 20 minutes later, everyone's seated eating. I've never seen anything like it. 
That was 2,000 people with a staff of 50 in a well-heeled system, and it took 20 minutes. Can you imagine how long it took just to distribute food to 15,000 people with 11 of your friends? So at the end of that long day of just food service, catering, they're exhausted. And now these people still want healing and teaching. Jesus looks at his disciples. He goes, these guys got to go. They're going to mutiny. They're going to they're crash and burn. So he forces them to go ahead of him on a boat to the other side of the lake. He says, I'll dismiss the crowds. You guys get going. So here they are. And you know how when your boss lets you go, and you're like, finally, I'm just going to go home, see my family crash. And then the car won't work. And you've got to push it all the way home. That's basically what happened. They get in the boat. They are finally in their hearts starting to relax. And a wind starts to blow. Now, the Sea of Galilee sits about 700 feet below sea level in basically what is a geographic bowl. Because surrounding that lake are hills that rise to up to about 2,000 feet above sea level. So you've got a drop of almost 3,000 feet. And the cold air at night often blows over the hills, down into that bowl, and displaces the warm air. If you're a weather nerd, you are just having so much fun right now. And that cold air blowing out the warm air causes all kinds of swirling wind patterns. And it makes the waves start to kick up, and you get a squall in the lake. And this happened all the time in the Sea of Galilee. It still happens all the time. So these guys are in a little boat, and it's getting rocked by the wind. And it says that the wind was blowing out of the west, which is where they were headed. So they were, they were rowing into the wind. A sail wouldn't help you because a sail would pull them back where they needed, the opposite way where they needed to go. So they are rowing, and it says they started in evening, which uh, in, in Hebrew and in Greek, in those days they had names for certain periods of the day. Evening meant basically 6 to 9 p.m. So somewhere, let's, let's split the difference. Around 8.30, they take off. And it says that by the time Jesus finally walked out to them in the fourth watch of the night, anywhere between 3 to 6 a.m., they had successfully rowed about 3 to 4 miles and found themselves in the middle of the lake. Just picture rowing a boat against the wind when you're already exhausted from 8.30 to 3.30 in the morning. I don't know about you, but I'm feeling what they're feeling. And not only that, most of us have had days like that where we can exactly remember. We don't have to imagine. We can remember what a day like that feels like. And the water is spraying in their face. The wind is howling. The boat is rocking. Some of these guys who are seasoned fishermen are still puking over the edge. And the one question probably on everyone's mind is where is Jesus? Where is he? And that's not just a complaining question or an empty question because Matthew and Mark record for us that on a previous crossing of the same lake, a similar squall had risen up and the boat was getting rocked by a storm and Jesus that time was with them and he was so tired, he was curled up in the bottom of the boat snoring. And the disciples, fearing for their lives, said, Jesus, wake up. We're going to drown. He says, you dummies. Why would I let I'm right here with you. Why would I be on a boat that's going to sink? I'm not done yet. And he says to the, the storm, hey, shut up. And the storm goes, my bad. Gone. 
with a word, a verbal command, he stills the waters and stops the storm. And these guys see that, and they're like, uh, this ain't no normal dude. But the skeptics among them might have said, who knows, maybe the storm was due to stop, and he just, like a great magician, set it right at the right moment when the wind stopped. Who knows? But he had already demonstrated that in the storm, his presence with them could make a difference. So when they were asking in their hearts, where is Jesus? It was not an empty question. Because they needed someone in that moment. They couldn't, it wasn't an option to stop rowing because they would be blown by the wind right back to where they started from. And six hours of rowing would have just been obliterated like that. So here they are, completely drained empty, discouraged, exhausted. And they're wondering where their Savior is in a moment like this. Have you ever asked that same question when you're in a dark night in your life? I mean, where are you? I've been throwing up this distress signal for a very long time, and you haven't answered. You know those dystopian um, stories where after everything, when the zombie apocalypse finally happens and some guy in a ham radio is going, is there anybody else out there? We have a small pocket of people in this little town. We're holding it down. We're surviving. Are there others? And every day they send out the same broadcast and every day they're greeted with silence. It's that feeling. Have you ever been there? Uh, God, you said cry out to you. I'm crying out. And it's day 855. Why don't you answer? What I'm asking you for is not even a bad thing. It's a good thing. It lines up well with everything you've commanded. I am asking just for some rescue. Help me. And we ask the question, where are you? But there comes a point, I think, for many of us, where we stop asking the question from a place of faith and desperation. And we begin to ask it as an accusation. Has that happened to you? And it's understandable why that would. By day 855 of any ordeal, when the God who saves hasn't saved you yet, it's a natural tension to feel. Um, Where are you? At the start, it's, where are you, Lord? Where are you? After day 855, where are you? It's the way your wife would ask you when you're, late 30 minutes to come home from work for dinner. Uh, Where are you? It's not really a question, is it? Wives have a way of turning question marks into exclamation points. Where are you? And the only right answer is not where I'm supposed to be. Not where I'm supposed to be, dear. We sometimes do that to Jesus. I needed rescue like two years ago. Where are you? And I, that's, I think Jesus has great compassion for when that weight settles on our hearts. But I think it's important to remember, just like the disciples, this scenario had happened before and not that long before. They had been on a boat on the same body of water in the same kind of storm, and he had rescued them. And the point of that is that if you really think back to your life, God has shown himself. And not just once, not just twice. If you're really paying attention and you look backwards over your life, you will see again and again times where he did come through. 
And when I think we are saying to God, you've abandoned us, it's quite often not just that God is silent, but that we have chosen to be forgetful. And in that forgetfulness, we have stopped having faith. Now, I'm not saying to you when God is slow to act, all of that tension is your fault. But I'm saying that there is no rescue that comes to you by pointing an accusing finger back at God and crying out, where are you with a spirit of accusation and bitterness? Whenever we ask God, where are you? Our first task must to be remember when he was there before. Because Jesus has, for most of us in this room, more than enough, more than adequately earned the right to be trusted and believed. One of the reasons I love being in a small church is that I'm not preaching to a thousand pixels in a crowd that I don't know. I'm looking, I see everything, and I'm looking at all of you as I'm preaching, and so many of you, I know your story. We walk together through it. You know my story. I can recount for you if you forget how many times Jesus got you through. You don't have to remember it because your brothers and sisters remember for you. That's the beauty of a small family. Oh, come on. Do you remember when? Do you remember sitting with me crying in that dark little room thinking, when is rescue going to come? And look where you are today. Have you forgotten? It's important to ask, where are you? But let's never lose that edge of faith when we ask it. Because he has shown up, and he does continue to show up. It may be longer of a wait than you want, but if you give up hope on God, what is left for us? Where else will saving come from? So they ask the question in their hearts, where are you, Jesus? Sorry, I don't know what happened here. Um, That's where I want to be. Where are you, Jesus? And here's the answer. Jesus after dismissing the crowds, like they tried to make him king. We love how good it feels to be fed. You're the man. They wanted to make him king by force. And he's like, nope, I don't want that right now. It's not the time. So he dismisses them, sends them home. And he goes up on the mountainside. Now, if you remember, this is kind of a geographic bowl. So from the mountainside, he has a clear long distance view of the whole lake. You might not think you could see three or four miles away, but man, if you've ever seen out in like Montana or Colorado, and you see a mountain that looks like, oh, that's like I could walk to that mountain. It's right there. It's like 50 miles away. You can see for miles on a clear night. And Mark's account of this is interesting because it says, after leaving them, he went up on a mountainside to pray, and later that night, the boat was in the middle of the lake. Now, this lake is about five, six miles across, so it's not a huge lake. And he was alone on land, perched on the mountain, and he saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. That's an important sentence right there. Some of us wonder, are you allowed to pray with your eyes open? I think Jesus proves to us you can because he's on the mountainside praying. He's looking at the disciples the whole time. One eye on God, the Father, one eye on his disciples struggling. And he's like, these guys are having trouble, man. They'll... He's watching them the whole time while he's praying. They don't know it. They can't even feel it. But there isn't a moment when he abandons them, where he's forgetful of them, mindless of their need. He is watching like a father from on top of that mountain, and the whole time he is restoring his own heart 
in prayer, he continues to bear a burden out of love for his friends. You know, I think one of the hardest things to learn in the Christian life is to trust that God is with me when I can't see him. How many of you studied psychology in college at all? Yeah, I did too. And I remember the the work of a Swiss psychologist named Jean Piaget. Do you remember what he studied? He dealt almost entirely with something called object permanence. Do you ever play peekaboo with a very small infant? Now, when it's your kid, here's what happens. You say peekaboo and you cover your face, the kid starts crying. Because they can't see you, which means to a baby, you've disappeared from the universe. My mommy or my daddy is gone. Other people's kids, they cry when I actually reveal my face. I don't know why. But when your own kid sees that they can't see you, for a very young infant, maybe up to about the age of two in some cases, for a baby, out of sight is out of existence. And they panic. The distress comes because I can't see you, which means you don't exist. You are not there. And of course, we chuckle and go, look how dumb they are. They think that because I blocked my face, I have stopped being here. Now, why am I talking about that? It's obvious. There is a spiritual parallel to object permanence. One of the hardest things to learn is when I cannot see the evidence of God, is God still with me? Is he still there? Is he still real? For the baby who's six months old, in his universe, you really have blipped out of existence. But truth, objective reality says you have never stopped being there. If we decide the verdict of whether God exists based on whether he is visible in our own lives, that is just like an infant. Because God says I am there even when you can't detect me. And when we're passing through seasons like that, it's not just because God is torturing us. It is one of the essential milestones of development into maturity that we learn to trust that someone I cannot see nonetheless remains in reality. Think about how frightening it would be to go to university or even to go to elementary school if you really believe that the people who love you most wink out of existence when you can't see them. Thank God that by age of two, most people develop object permanence and they realize that though I can't see you, you're still there. A lot of the miracles that Jesus performed were meant to be seen by crowds. They were supposed to reveal who he is to everybody, but this is one of those miracles that had a very private audience. It was almost not talked about afterwards. It was meant only for the eyes of those into whose hands he would entrust the spread of the gospel. It was important that these men in particular saw something incredibly important about him that would burn a deep impression in their soul. And that thing they needed to see was this person we call rabbi and teacher and master who called us into a life of purpose, who promised us a wondrous salvation, is not just a good communicator making large promises. He controls the laws of physics itself. This is not just an amazing man. 
Have you ever met some amazing people where you said, man, just being around you makes me feel so ordinary. There are certain people, they just walk in the room and you go, this is not a normal dude. There's a presence here. There's something extraordinary about this person. And that can be very impressive. It could stir your heart. It could awaken good things in you. But Jesus is more than an impressive person. What he was demonstrating to these men was, whenever you think about me, make no mistake who I am. I'm not just an impressive man. I can walk on water. I can, for a moment at my command, cause gravity to no longer have an effect. Some 2,000 years before this moment, a man named Job testified about God. And he said about God, he alone stretches out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. 2,000 years before Jesus, this man had a vision of God who owed no explanation, no defense of himself to any of us. He said, this is God, that he can tread on the waves of the sea. Even water cannot sink him. I think it's important for us to remember this Because sometimes we do make God a slob like one of us. Do you remember Joan Osborne's song? And it makes me wonder, why pray at all if that's who God is to us? He's just another guy who owes us an answer, a defense of himself. God is not just one of us. He is the wave walker. He is the one who is so far greater than us. That if he chooses to explain himself, that's a gift. He doesn't owe it to us. And when we lose sight of who he is, our prayers lose so much of their force and begin to sound more like complaints than like cries to a God who saves. You got to remember that John had a single minded purpose in writing his whole gospel. Now, if you have a little EQ and you read all the Gospels, you start to pick up a little, I don't know if I'm imagining things, but I think, you know, how Jesus had three favorite dudes, Peter, James, and John. I think John and Peter were frenemies. There's a little subtext throughout the Gospels that there was a little jockeying for who gets to be the number two dude in this crew. Do you remember James and John even brought their mommy and said, "Uh, I have a favor to ask Jesus, can you make my boys... You're number two and three. You could decide which order, but. And Peter's like, <clears throat> and Andrew's like, hey, I was the first guy. Nobody ever even asked me. Maybe John doesn't include that little part of the story where Peter also walks on the water. That's interesting, isn't it? Because when you think about walking on the water, everyone immediately remembers Peter stepping out in faith. And they make the sermon and the story all about that. That's not even included in John's account. He's like, ah, I think Peter something he, for a second walked and then sank right away. But he doesn't even include it. Why? Is it out of pettiness? Jealousy? I don't think so. I think it's because Peter's walking on the water had very little to do with the central point of that whole miracle. The miracle is not to tell us that if you want to have a certain kind of life and adventure, you got to have faith and step out of the boat. There is much to be learned from that. I hope one day to preach from it because there is a lesson there. But it's not the primary lesson. The most important thing to learn from the episode of Jesus walking on the water was not that Peter joined him, but that Jesus walked on water. It frames for us 
who we imagine we are talking to when we talk to Jesus in prayer. And at the end of Matthew's account, and it's interesting, Matthew is the only guy who even mentions Peter getting out of the boat. Maybe Matthew and Peter were close. I don't know. He's like, I can't let this go. I'm going to have to tell that story, Peter. But at the end of Matthew's account, look what he writes. Then when everybody, including Peter soaking wet, climbed back into the boat, here was the shared testimony, the confession of everyone on that boat. Truly, you are the Son of God. Truly, you are the Son of God. That was the point of this miracle. That Jesus would convince those who followed him most closely, whenever you think of me, remember who I really am. That's going to be important later because some of you, most of you, are going to lose your lives over this gospel I entrust to you. And when in that moment you're threatened and you could escape death simply by saying, I renounce him, remember who I am. Because someday your life will hang in the balance and it will absolutely matter who you think I am when you think of me. Because he is God, it means so much more when the God who can walk on water walks straight to their boat. He didn't let them struggle all night. At some point, he said, these boys have had enough. And I think that's a good father. Some of us rescue our children way too quickly, way too early. And their muscles never grow. We're too quick to sweep in and rescue them from every hardship. But a good parent allows some struggle. An abusive parent goes to sleep (laughs) and wakes up to find out how it turned out. Don't do that. But a little struggle leads to growth. In fact, I I would suggest to you that there is no growth without resistance and challenge. None whatsoever. It's not possible to get more muscular by airlifting. I can do 6,000 bench presses of zero weight. I don't know about 6,000. Actually, I might get tired. But <clears throat> It's interesting that when he walks straight to their boat, one of the things he's saying is, I can do this. You thought I was impossibly out of reach. You thought that this water and these waves made it impossible for me to join you and calm the storm. And his message is, I am never as far away as you think. You think this impossible gulf separates us. It is nothing to me. I can cross water to get to you. Don't ever forget, my eyes are always on you, and I care for you. You're never struggling alone. You're not invisible to me. I see you. I know how hard it's been for you. And a moment will come when I come and bail you out. And if that doesn't happen on this side of earthly life, know this. When your life is extinguished and you open your eyes again, you will be with me in glory. That is a huge promise he makes to us. John Piper, pastor of Bethlehem Church in the Twin Cities in Minnesota, he makes a suggestion. I think it's an interesting one. He goes, remember after he fed the 5,000, 
and he had them collect all the leftovers. How many baskets were full, filled with leftovers? Shout it out. There's 12. And he says, I don't think that was a coincidence. 12 disciples, 12 baskets of leftovers. And his suggestion is, these men had labored all day serving him and others. And maybe they were starting to feel like we are just tools in his belt. We're just resources, human resources, and that's all we are to him. And he believes that each one of those baskets of leftovers was given to one of his crew to say, you thought that I was just using you and forgotten you, but this abundant provision is for you. Now, I can't prove that's true or not. That's a lot of conjecture, a lot of license, but it wouldn't be stretching the imagination too far to imagine that was actually the case. Why 12? I want to end this way. When you look at verse 21, John records something interesting that the other guys don't really make much of. After they let Jesus into the boat, and when it says they were willing, it was because Peter, Matthew and Mark reveal they thought he was seeing a ghost. They were seeing a ghost, an apparition. So once they realized he wasn't an evil spirit, they said, Jesus, get out of that water. Come into the boat like a normal person. Just ride the boat with us. And then it says, John writes, the boat immediately reached the shore where they were heading. A lot of people see in that statement yet another miracle of teleportation. That the minute Jesus got into the boat, they're back at shore. Like that seven-hour rowing ordeal, nothing. The minute Jesus gets in the boat, they're where they're supposed to be. And I think a literal reading would allow for that. that. That's probably true. But I also think it could have a symbolic meaning. Even if it wasn't immediate, I think it probably felt immediate. There's something powerful about struggle when someone who loves you joins with you in it. Even if nothing in your circumstances changes. I've experienced this because I've had some hard times in my life, but when I look next to me and Jeannie's standing there by my side, it really helps make the struggle bearable. There's something about the emergence, the entrance of Jesus into your situation that makes peace possible even if nothing else changes. And if you don't know what that experience is like, I want you to know that's one of the most important experiences of the Christian life. I remember back in the day, Jason Huey, I already warned him I would say this, so please, Jason, I, I, I warned you I would say this. It's not embarrassing, but he used to have a signature at the end of his emails that I, always gave me a chuckle. For a while, he was on this Einstein phase where he would always put an Einstein quote at the end of his, his emails. And one of them, I remember it, it read like this. I had to look it up because he'd stopped using it in 2013. <laughs> but it said this. Put your hand on a hot stove for a minute, and it seems like an hour. Sit with a pretty girl for an hour, and it seems like a minute. That's relativity. And, and you know, I think that's the way it is. A minute of ordeal without Jesus feels like an hour. And an hour of ordeal with Jesus feels like a minute. You know, I know that sounds like a cheap Rip off when I say to you, your problems will remain, but Jesus will be with you. And you're like, I don't want that. 
What I want is my problems to go. And I want you to pause because I understand why you might feel that way. But think about what you're really saying. How many of us would remain in a relationship where a person said to you, I don't really want you, but if I got bills to pay, if you could send your money, lend me your car, let me use your house, put your muscle into this task I have to do, I will be happy with that. How many of us could be happily in a marriage where the woman says, I don't ever want you to touch me or smile at me or talk to me, but I've got all these things you need to do around the house. And if you did that, we'd be okay. (laughs) Wow. I'm your staff member. I'm no longer your husband. See, when we turn a person into the means by which my troubles will go away, it immediately kills the relationship. But there's something powerful we all know is true. That even if nothing changes, when those who love you get in the boat with you, it changes everything. I love the words of this old Charles Mills song that says, If Jesus goes with me, I will go anywhere. I think that's an important sentiment we need to recapture in the church today. I think the hymn today would say, If Jesus doesn't fix this, I'm not going anywhere. And I think the heart of those who see Jesus cries out, if you will go with me, there's nowhere I can't go. Even this trial is bearable if you will walk out to me and get in the boat with me. Even as I say the words, I can't shake the feeling of how it sounds to so many people today. That sounds like a bait and switch. It sounds like an empty promise, but it isn't. I want you to know that the greatest thing which Jesus offers is not relief from your pain, but himself, his real presence. And that's even more hope-giving because every suffering that goes away is soon replaced by another. That's just the nature of this life. But it's a wonderful promise that a never-failing Savior will always, always be with you. In early November, when I preach again, the thrust of that sermon will be this very thing. We have taken Jesus, who promises the presence of God with us, and turned him into a butler who delivers the things we need. And because of that, he has stopped being for so many of us who he's supposed to be. I want to encourage us to rethink who we see when we see Jesus. He cares about what you're going through. Make no mistake. He sees how hard it's been, how long it's lasted, and he will not make you suffer forever. But in that suffering, explore in your heart where it takes you. What do you cry out for? Who are you talking to? And what is it you're really saying to him? Jesus invites us to cry out to him, not with a voice of accusation, but of real need and real faith. And he says, if you will cry out to me, 
I will be there. And you will know I've never left. I've always been there. I've always been watching you. Some of us really need to hear and believe those words right now. I think you walked into this room really discouraged, feeling like God's a million miles away. And if that's not how you walked in, someday you will walk into this building feeling just that. The most important thing I can offer you from this pulpit is not the sexiest thing we all want. We want good stories, little truisms we can remember and quote to others and live our lives by, mottos worth quoting. That's what we all want. That's what I want. My flesh says I want to be that guy. I want to say the stuff others will tweet. Oh, that's good. (laughs) I want to be that guy in my flesh. But the most important thing I can offer you is like a broken record, the same message. Do you see him? Do you know who this Jesus is? Don't you ever get bored of him? Jesus is the one who will love you best. He's more faithful to you than the person sitting next to you. He's the one who saves. He can help you when no one else can. And I hope that the one thing I deliver consistently from this pulpit is that I preach Jesus and that you see him whenever I preach. That's my hope. If I can achieve that before I die, I will say that I've been faithful to him. And you don't ever have to tweet a thing I say, ever. But on your deathbed, I hope you can say, I'm coming. And I know you've walked with me every moment till here. Let's pray together. One of the things I welcome in the church today is like this real um, push for practicality. That we don't want fluffy doctrine alone. But we want to know what we're supposed to do, how we're supposed to live. That's good. But somewhere along the way, I think we're starting to lose that important doctrine of who Jesus is. I think maybe many Sundays, both of us, you as a hearer and me as the preacher, come to the text with the same motive. I need something great to say. Something practical, something clever, something memorable. Something that will keep them all awake. But I think there's only one real message that's worth repeating over and over. Jesus loves you and Jesus saves. So let's just sit in those words and let them wash over your heart. And if there's something you feel prompted to say back to him, use this moment of quiet to say it. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.